this evening. Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24 in your Bibles. We'll be looking at 23 through 26 in the introduction and then verse by verse through the whole chapter there. So help me by finding your way to Acts chapter number 24. We have been with Paul from his conversion all the way through all three missionary journeys and some have considered this his fourth missionary journey where he is heading to Rome where he'll eventually die after being imprisoned in the Mamertine prison. Acts chapter 24, he's just been arrested. Uh, They tried to kill him uh, last week. There were 40 men that took a vow not to eat or drink anything until he was dead and killed. And uh, Paul has been shipped off to Caesarea, Caesarea, where he will... Uh, He's getting ready to stand before the governor, Felix. And that's where we pick up the narrative this evening. Acts 24, uh, once you found that, if you're so able, would you stand for the reading of God's word, verse 23 down through 26 to start, and then we'll be going verse by verse through the whole chapter tonight. The Bible says, And he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintances to minister or come unto him. And after certain days, when Felix came, uh, came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul that he might loose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. Tonight, we'll look at this topic, preaching to politicians, and we'll look at Felix. Over the next several chapters, Paul is going to get to give the gospel to multiple politicians of the Roman government. And uh, tonight, it's Felix's turn of us to look at Felix as Paul witnessed to Felix. We'll look at Felix's backstory a little bit. And we'll see Paul in court first, and then we'll get to the part where he is ministering to and witnessing to Felix here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you tonight for your, your word. Thank you that we get to walk through it verse by verse and better understand it. And Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just uh, understand the Bible in our head. We'd go forth and do our best to put it into practice uh, in our day-to-day life. Lord, help us this evening with this message in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Everywhere Paul went, he looked to share the the good news of Jesus. Whether he was ministering to a demon-possessed woman in Philippi or a group of ladies worshiping by the river on the outskirts of Philippi, that's where Lydia got saved, or Jews inside the synagogue, or he'd get thrown out of there and then go to the Gentiles on the outside of the synagogue, or maybe he's even witnessing, as we saw a couple weeks ago, to an angry mob who is trying to kill him, or as we see here, a low-ranking politician in the Roman government, everywhere Paul went, he sought to preach Christ. If it was moving and it was human, he sought to preach Christ. When, when God knows that you are bold and you are regular in your witness, he may very well bring you into the presence of a high-profile person so that you can share with them the good news of salvation. Uh, I'm going to give some examples of what I'm talking about right here, but I want to give this disclaimer first. I'm going to mention the name of all sorts of 
of religious leaders that are all over the map. These guys probably, some of these guys probably wouldn't even sit and have a cup of coffee together because they so sharply disagree on various things. For the record, I am not endorsing anybody, uh, any, any name I throw out here, I am not endorsing any of these people, okay? Um, the first example I will give is Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley was in the elevator, and Jack Hiles entered the same elevator as Elvis Presley. And the two of them were alone in the elevator for uh, some time. And, uh, you know, elevator rides are often short. And so uh, Jack Hiles wanted to make sure that he got in a witness there with the Elvis Presley. And so he inquired about Elvis's salvation. And as the story goes, Elvis put his head down and admitted that he was living a life in rebellion to God and that he had been saved as a small child and was living away from the Lord. But God put Jack Hiles in the same space with Elvis Presley so that Jack Hiles would have a chance to witness to Elvis Presley. Some of you who are more into uh, uh, the music culture than I am may recognize the name Kanye West. Kanye West, a famous rapper. Uh, Kanye West uh, recently uh, has claimed to have converted to Christianity. And I am not here to judge that or question that. He seems to be sincere in his decision to become a Christian and get saved. Uh, a pastor by the name of Adam Tyson uh, uh, sat with Kanye and, and led Kanye to a place where Kanye was ready to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save him. I was reading something Pastor Tyson wrote on this, and Pastor Tyson said that Kanye now corrects people who curse in his presence and tells them that he's a believer in Christ and not to use that language around him. Uh, Pastor Tyson pastors a Bible church out in the West uh, area, uh, out, out on the West Coast, and apparently a lot of people now come to his church because of the attention brought by Kanye. He said, uh, many people show up to our church uh, because of Kanye. He said, it does not matter how they've gotten here. What matters is that we preach the gospel. I don't know who Pastor Tyson is. I know very little about him, but I know this. God brought Kanye into his presence, and Pastor Tyson was ready to preach the gospel. And then there's Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber. Boy, the young people, I have their attention really well tonight. They're, they're listening really well. I'm talking about pop star, rap star, singers. Justin Bieber was the, he was the, the boy band rock star just a handful of years ago. I remember when all the teenage girls just swooned over Justin Bieber. I remember a video that was recorded where they asked, is it okay for Justin Bieber to park in a handicapped spot and make some old woman park down the parking lot? And these teenage girls said, oh, yes, that would be totally fine. Justin Bieber can just do whatever he so desires. And uh, Justin Bieber was labeled the bad boy of Hollywood, got himself into a lot of trouble and uh, uh, really made a wreck of his life. And one night he spent the night at a pastor by the name of Carl Lentz's home. And uh, Justin had, uh, as the story goes, Justin had gospel preaching influences around him in the past, but had just ignored those influences. But that night, Justin was so broken over the sin in his life and where it had brought him that he got down on his knees. And Pastor Carl Lentz was able to walk him through the gospel. And Justin claims to have given his life to Christ. And these are people of influence. And God uh, brought Christians into their life to proclaim the gospel to them uh, in these times, uh, it, it, to these people who held 
positions of influence. Now, I want to articulate my position very well. Justin Bieber's soul, Kanye West's soul, Elvis Presley's soul uh, uh, mean nothing more to God than my soul or your soul. We're all equal in the presence of God. And and, and someone worded it well. They said, uh, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in His sight. Rich and poor, uh, tall and short, no matter uh, what, what you, where you come from, no matter your background, if you are part of God's human race, your soul is of equal value and God wants the gospel to be taken to everyone, whether they're famous or infamous or, or, not, uh, or none of those. Uh, God wants the gospel to go to everyone, but please understand that some people hold positions of influence where a lot of people look up to them and, and, and consider what they think. And if one of those people are able to get saved, then boy, that leads to all sorts of people uh, coming to Christ for salvation. And such is the case also with politicians. Have you ever thought about what you would do if you came in the presence of someone who is super rich and famous? how you would respond, um, what, would you, uh, what would you do? Some of you here are sports fans. Let's say that your favorite athlete just happened to bump into you, right? Some of you are big uh, movie buffs, and I'm not here to endorse any movie on any level, but you have a movie star that you really like, or you know someone, maybe you have a politician that you really like. Whoever it is, someone who's rich and famous, you were to walk in their presence, how would you respond? What would you do? Um, would you be so starstruck that you would not be able to even witness to them? Now, I'm mainly speaking to the younger crowd because I've learned in my own life, the older I get, the less, I, the less impressed I am with anybody. All right? Uh, it used to be, when I was a little boy, man, Michael Jordan was larger than life. And if I walk, if Michael Jordan walked in the same room I was in, I would be speechless. I wouldn't even be able to ask him for an autograph. I, it's, but now if I bumped into Michael Jordan or, or shared a, a car ride with Michael Jordan, I, I mean, I, it would be a neat experience, but I'd have no problem talking to Michael Jordan about Jesus. Now, how would you respond if someone rich and famous walked into your presence? Would you be in so, such awe and such adoration uh, would there be so much admiration from you to them, man worship, woman worship, if you will, that you would not even have the opportunity to proclaim the name of Jesus to them? Or would you have the courage to do so? Here we find Paul in a precarious situation. Paul is under protective custody by the Roman government, and he's awaiting a trial before the governor, Felix. In Acts 24, we will see that trial play out and then see the special relationship God gave Paul with Felix and how Paul would use that relationship to preach Jesus to this Roman official. Billy Graham met with and witnessed to every U.S. president from Harry Truman all the way up through Donald Trump. Every single U.S. president from Harry Truman to Donald Trump uh, Billy Graham met with, prayed with, witnessed to every single one of them. In fact, Billy Graham is said to have spent more than 20 nights sleeping in the White House. He would be called in to advise various presidents and read scripture to various presidents and 
pray with uh, various presidents. Again, I'm not here this evening to endorse any name I'm throwing out. I'm just simply sharing with you the fact that God gave Billy Graham an opportunity to be the pastor of our presidents, to give them spiritual insight and give them spiritual wisdom. There are a lot of things about Billy Graham's ministry, especially later on, that I disagree with, but this much is true. Uh, Any time he ever gave the gospel, he gave a crystal clear presentation of the gospel. I'm curious this evening, how many of you were saved either directly or indirectly because of the ministry of Billy Graham? Would you hold up your hands? I'd like to see. All right, uh, four or five hands raised. And uh, there might be more people in heaven as a result of Billy Graham's preaching than any other singular person uh, that's lived on planet Earth. I've seen pictures. Billy Graham preached a crusade in, uh, in uh, I believe it was uh, South Korea, where over a million people showed up to hear him preach the gospel. And Billy Graham uh, was there to witness to and give the gospel to politicians and those of great political influence. Now, um, listen, you may be sitting here this evening and you've already checked out because you're thinking, well, I'll never talk to anyone rich or famous. I'm an insignificant nobody. And when would I ever get the chance to talk to someone like that? And you think, well, this sermon's not for me. When am I going to get to preach to politicians? And here's what I want you to to, to gather. Um, God is a miracle-working God. Remember the sermon this morning how we talked about God's capability and our compliance? If you are compliant to be bold and regular in your witness, God can bring anybody into your path. And I mean anybody into your path. You could be sitting down with President Biden. You could be sitting down with um, uh, the Queen of England. You could be sitting down with uh, Governor Lamont. There is no telling who God could bring into your path. You think, I can't imagine the set of circumstances that would get me that close. Do you know that every year there are regular Joes and regular uh, whatever lady's name you want to pick that land in the presence of people who are great through uh, circumstances they would have never thought possible a month before or 12 months before. You never ever know how God can work and orchestrate and set up a divine appointment where you will have an opportunity one-on-one to witness and give the gospel uh, to someone great. I think of Psalm chapter 8 and verse 2 where David says uh, that out of the mouth of babes and sucklings that God ordained strength that he might still or calm or discredit, if you will, the enemy and the avenger. Or I think of 1 Corinthians 1, 27, where it says that God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. And, and you may look at yourself as a regular, ordinary, average. You may even think of yourself as below average. Let me just tell you right now, you are a prime candidate for God to use to proclaim the gospel to someone who is mighty. Don't you ever, 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 ever for a minute think that God cannot use you or will not use you. You must be ready at all times to give an answer of the hope that lies within you because you never know when that opportunity is going to come along. And boy, I don't want to be caught stuttering when someone's coming to me with questions. This evening, we're going to look at Paul, who just a few months prior was in Gentile nation, witnessing to and ministering to the Gentile dogs of society, 
Now he's sitting in the presence of a Roman official with clout and power, the governor of all Judea within the Roman government, and he's witnessing to this politician. He's preaching to a politician. Now, we're going to look at three thoughts out of Acts 24 as we continue our journey with Paul into the courtroom of Felix. Okay, let's jump into the outline tonight. Get your pen ready. Let's go. Number one, Paul's trial before Felix. Paul's trial before Felix. Letter A, notice the Jews' accusation. The Jews' accusation. Look at verse number one of Acts chapter 24. We see here, and after five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain order named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And so we know the backstory here, especially if you were in church last week or watched the message online. Paul has uh, uh, gone from the castle in Jerusalem. He's been transported under two, uh, uh, 200 uh, uh, soldiers, uh, two, uh, two sets of centurions or 200 soldiers. He's been transported under protective custody from Jerusalem to the port town of Caesarea right there on the Mediterranean. And he's under lock and key. He's under a lot of guard as the Jews are trying to kill him. And uh, they have sent for Ananias and the elders to come from Jerusalem to Caesarea where they're going to have a trial before Felix over whether or not Paul is guilty of the charges being raised. And so the Jews show up, and they show up with a mediator or an attorney, an eloquent attorney named Tertullus. This was probably a lawyer that worked for the high priest and for uh, the council and represented them before the Roman government on a regular basis. And so they bring representation, and this representation, Tertullus, is going to lay out the case against Paul to the Roman government. Let me give you two thoughts below the Jews' accusation. First of all, notice their their, uh, compliments of Felix, their compliments of Felix. Now, they're going to lay on the flattery real thick here. Look at verse 2. The Bible says, And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, accuse Paul, saying, Seeing that, uh, that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always, and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. These compliments were empty flattery. Um, History tells us about Felix that he was not kind to the Jews. He was not kind uh, to the Jewish people within his province. In fact, he was quite brutal their direction. And so this was flat out cheap compliments, cheap flattery being offered up by Tertullus on behalf of the Jewish council there. And so they they lay on their flattery in an attempt to butter him up, to soften him up, so that they can then turn around and go after Paul. So we see their compliments of Felix. Notice next, their case against Paul. Their case against Paul. Look at verse 5. We're going to read down 5 through 9. I'm going to, after uh, every verse or two, uh, stop and give you some commentary on the verses. Look at verse 5. Here's their case against Paul. Tertullus says, For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now let's take this apart uh, one accusation at a time. First of all, notice they said he was a pestilent fellow, a pestilent fellow. They were calling Paul a pest. They were saying he was a pest. He was an agitator or someone who stirred up trouble. 
And they knew that this would get the ear of Felix. If you know much about Roman rule, you know that their number one goal was to suppress any insurrection or public scene or rioting immediately. They came in and they shut that down hard. And they did not like people who went up and stirred up crowds and rebel roused and was a pestilent. And so they knew if they could get the label of pestilent on Paul that maybe that would work in their favor and work against Paul. So the Romans hated civil discourse and Tertullus was doing his very best to pin Paul as someone who stirred up trouble. Notice the second accusation there. They said in verse uh, uh, verse number 5, they said he's a mover of sedition among the Jews throughout the world. A mover of sedition. Um, while it is true that most everywhere that Paul went, uh, there was trouble that was stirred up. There was a stirring up of the Jews everywhere Paul went. Let's, let's, uh, let's set the record straight. Paul didn't do the stirring up. It wasn't Paul going into town and stirring up the Jews. It was the Jewish councils in the various synagogues that were stirring up the Jews. You often find this is that if someone is very accusatory, what they're usually doing is they're taking their own shortcomings and they're superimposing them on the party that they're accusing. And that's exactly what's going on here. The Jews were the ones that stirred up the, the crowds. Now they're accusing Paul of doing what they did. They did not like Paul's doctrine, but they were the ones that rented a mob everywhere they could to threaten Paul's life and run him out of town. So uh, they're making their case against Paul. They've accused him of being a pestilent. They've accused him of being a, a, someone who stirs up or moves sedition among the Jews all throughout the world. And um, uh, look at the last accusation there. They, they say there in, in verse uh, number 5, they say that he was the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, back then, the name Christian had not yet quite caught on. And so Christians were known as one of two things, depending on who you talk to. Those who were against Christianity called them the Nazarites, or the Nazarenes, rather. They called them the Nazarenes. Why? Because Jesus was from Nazareth, and so they called them the Nazarenes, the follower of the one from Nazareth. Now, you may think, well, why would they call them that. Here's why. Because Nazarene or Nazareth was considered a bad, bad, bad part of town. You remember the disciple that said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was not considered something good. It was almost a byword. It was almost a byword. That was like saying, yeah, let's go follow those folks from the ghetto. They were trying to label them as being folks who were uh, 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 of a part of town or from someone who came from a part of town that was not good. It was a, it was a, 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 a disinformation campaign, if you will. Now, the other term that was around and popular back uh, during Paul's day, uh, Christians called themselves Christians, but another, uh, another name they had were those that followed the way. The way. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the way, and so they refer to themselves as those of the way. We'll see that term come into play here a little bit later. And so they're saying that Paul uh, is one going around and he is teaching others to follow the Nazarene. So Tertullus was accusing Paul of something of which his side was guilty. Look at verse number 6. It says, Who also hath gone about to profane the temple. So now they accused him of stirring up riots everywhere he's gone. Now they're going to accuse him of profaning the temple. Look here, whom we took 
and would have judged according to our law, but the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us, and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom uh, thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Now, this was another lie, uh, but Tortullus, as a lawyer, as an advocate, was very careful how he told it. Look back at verse 6. Who also hath gone about to profane the temple. Notice he didn't say that he did profane the temple. He's choosing his words very carefully. They are saying he went about to profane the temple. Instead of pointing at actions that Paul actually committed, instead now Tertullus is pointing at Paul's motive. They're accusing him of having a motive to profane the temple. He's being very clever. He's using his words to say something that uh, cannot be proven accurate or inaccurate, uh, He's, he, but, but yet not saying anything where he can be pinned down or cornered. And so we see that they're accusing him of having a motive of profaning the temple. So we see letter A, uh, they're, they're the, the, accu- the, accus- the Jews' accusation. Notice letter B, Paul's answer. Paul's answer. Let me give you two sub-thoughts under this quickly. Notice Paul's answer, your claims are baseless. Your claims are baseless. Look down at verse 10, and, and but we see Paul here. It says, Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Paul said, I don't need a lawyer. I'll speak for myself. I'll speak on my own behalf. And Paul did not use empty flattery. Instead, he pointed to Felix's knowledge of Jewish law. Most Roman officials did their best to stay out of matters of Jewish law. In fact, remember when Paul was captured and taken up into the castle? They, the next day, they brought him down to the council to let the Jewish council work this out. The Roman government wanted to keep their hands out of it. Lysias, the chief captain, wanted nothing to do with it. And so for Felix to step up and agree to take this and, and weigh in, the only reason why Felix was willing to do that was because he had a wife who was Jewish. We'll talk about her more in a moment. And Felix had a little bit better handle than the average Roman uh, uh, governor, Roman official, on Jewish matters and Jewish laws. And so all Paul does is he points to the fact that they know, or rather that he knows about this. Look at verse 11. Look down at verse 11. Because that thou mayest uh, understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship... Uh, what's he saying here? He's saying, I hadn't been in town long enough uh, to conspire some crazy plan to profane the, profane the temple. Paul said, when I was arrested, I had only even been in Jerusalem for 12 days. That wasn't any time to, 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 to set up some master plan to, to create and, and profane the temple. Look at verse number 12. And they, uh, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues, nor in the city, neither can... They prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Paul is saying, listen, I was just in the temple. I was minding my own business. And they attacked me. I did not attack them. They attacked me. I was there. I was performing a sacrifice. I was paying for other men who were finishing up a Nazarite vow. I was not causing any problems. I was minding my business. And the next thing you know, I'm being beaten. He's saying to the Jewish elders, your claims are 
baseless. You say I was there to profane the temple. You say I'm a rebel rouser and someone who stirs up trouble. Your claims are baseless. Notice the other answer of Paul. He says, my conscience is clear. My conscience is clear. Look with me at verse number 14. But this I say unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, and there's that term, the way, after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there should be, shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Now this is loaded. There's a lot here. To unpack, and, uh, and I'll do my best to, to, to unpack as much of it as I can quickly. What Paul says here is the real reason why they are upset with me is because they don't like my doctrine. That's what this comes down to. This has nothing to do with me profaning the temple. This has nothing to do with me uh, 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 stirring up trouble all over the world because I haven't stirred up trouble all over the world. and I haven't profaned the temple. What this is really about is they don't like my preaching. And Paul says, I actually believe the law and the prophets, and I hold to the resurrection of the dead one day. If anyone is straying away from doctrine, Paul says, it isn't me, it's them. It isn't me, it's them. I hold to the law and the prophets and the promise of the coming Messiah. And I believe that the way, Jesus is the way, He was the Messiah. Paul, of course, was right. Shortly after Paul's death, the Talmud would be released. You all know what the Talmud is? The Talmud is a commentary on the Torah. And Jews today hold more to the Talmud, which is a commentary of the, of the truth, than they do the actual Word of God. And so when Paul said, I believe the law and the prophets, they don't, he wasn't wrong. They were probably in the middle of writing the Talmud as he was making that claim. He says, I'm a purist with Scripture, and these folks, they don't really believe the Bible. They believe their own version of the Bible. And by the way, we know that's true. You remember Jesus picked apart their hypocrisy by eating on the Sabbath day and, uh, uh, and, and healing on the Sabbath day. And boy, that drove them crazy because they had their long list of man-made rules. And when Jesus wouldn't hold to their rules, boy, that drove them crazy. And now Paul is in that same Vain. Look with me at verse 16, and here's where we get the idea of his conscience being clear. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscious void of offense toward God and toward man. One thing I missed from verse number 14, look at the, uh, rather verse 15, look at the end of verse 15. It says, um, both, uh, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Both of the just, you know what Paul's saying here? Paul's offering a somber warning. He's telling both Felix and this Jewish council, you guys think that you're like the deciders, the judges, Jewish council of the Jewish matters, Felix of political matters. You're both one day going to answer to a God who's going to decide who is just and who is unjust. He's giving them both a gut check. He's giving them both a reality check. He's saying to them, listen, you all, we all are going to stand before God one day and give an account. I think about judges who are corrupt. And there are judges that are corrupt in this country. 
There are judges who take money and look the other way on things. There are judges that are part of the good old boys club. And it's sad that that happens. I thank God for our justice system, by the way, but let me just be clear on this. I think our justice system here in this country is as good or better than any country in the world. I thank God for it. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have its problems. And that doesn't mean that sometimes they don't get it wrong. Because they do get it wrong. But do you know that those judges that are corrupt will one day stand before God who is not corrupt? They will be held accountable. Whether or not Felix was going to get this right, you know what Paul's attitude was? Whatever. I'm going to stand before God one day who will judge the just and the unjust. Look back at verse 16. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscious void of offense toward God and toward men. You remember the last time Paul said this? The last time he said this, he was in the presence of Ananias, who was the high priest, right? The, the last chapter, this is from last week's sermon. How many of you remember what happened when Paul made that comment? Ananias ordered something to be done to Paul. What was it, Tim? Yeah, what happened, Barb? Rose? Had him slapped or punched in the mouth, right? Paul made this very same statement, and Ananias said, hit him in the mouth. Strike him in the mouth. And Paul didn't turn around and called him a whited wall. You remember that? I can't believe you're talking to the high priest that way. And Paul's response was, oh, I didn't know that was the high priest. And we talked about how it was Paul. Paul was probably either blind or at least had a hard time seeing and did not know that it was Ananias who had ordered that. Well, now Paul makes the same statement. But Ananias isn't in charge of the council. Felix is. And Ananias just has to stand there and take it. I think Paul was going to make sure he got that line in again to reiterate to, to, uh, to Ananias and to the Jewish council, I am innocent. You know what he's saying here? This is very important. He's saying here, when he says, my conscience is clear, my, my conscience is void of offense toward God and toward man, the accusation against him was, you've been a rebel rouser all over the world. Paul is saying, I have never cast a stumbling block intentionally in front of anybody. My conscience is clear before God. My conscience is clear before man. I have not caused, cast a stumbling block before anyone. Look at verse 17. He says, Now after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. And Paul is saying, My whole purpose for coming to Jerusalem and into the temple was not to cause problems. It was to bring an offering to the Jews and show respect for Moses and his laws. I, I wasn't stirring up any trouble. Look at verse 18. Whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither uh, with multitude nor with tumult. I said I was there on my own. I was there uh, uh, not causing any problems. Who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had ought against me. Paul is saying, where are those Jews who made the original accusation? You know where those Jews were? Nowhere to be found. Because those Jews had no case against Paul. Paul is saying, my conscience is clear. 20, verse 20. Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me, while I stood before the council, 
except it be for this one voice that I cried, standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. Paul finishes off by reiterating that he is not in trouble for stirring anything or anyone up. Uh, He is in trouble with the Jewish elders because they don't like his doctrine. They don't like his teaching. They don't like his preaching. And so Paul is setting the record straight. Let's look at letter C and notice Felix's adjournment. Felix's adjournment. Now, it worked out that that starts with letter A, but that is a court term that talks about a delay. Uh, Felix is going to kick the can down the road. He is not going to make a decision here. He's going to delay his, his verdict. Look at verse 22. It says, And when Felix had heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, there's another reference to Christianity being called the way or that way, he deferred them. There's the adjournment. He deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintances to minister or come uh, unto him. So there's, uh, Paul's being held in, uh, in, in protective custody. He's not allowed to leave. And he's saying here, listen, I don't know who to believe. I'm going to wait for Lysias to come down, and I'm going to make a decision. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and step out on a limb and say this, based on what we're going to read in a few minutes, and I think uh, this will make more sense by the end of the message. I, I think that Felix knew that Paul was innocent. I think he knew. I think he knew Ananias' character. I think he knew that Ananias was a corrupt politician in his own way. And I think he knew that Paul was right. And I think he knew the decision he was going to make. But for political reasons, he refused to make a decision. And so he left Paul in limbo. He left Paul in limbo. He would not make a decision. He would not come down with a verdict. And so Paul is left in trial. Last week we looked at the providence of God, how that nothing happens without God signing off on it. Listen, I'm sure Paul is sitting there thinking, come on, Felix, get a backbone, make a decision. One way or the other, make a decision. But as we'll see as the story unfolds, God had Felix hold off on a decision for a very, very specific reason. We'll get into that reason next week. Number one, we see Paul's trial before Felix. Number two, we see Paul's testifying to Felix. And this is the thrust of the message. All of that was introduction, if you will, to set up Uh, Point number two, which is the thrust of the message. God had a purpose in all of this. The Jewish elders and their smooth-talking lawyer, Tertullus, went home and Paul went back into his holding cell, his protective custody. Felix was curious about Paul and sought him out for private conversation. And here's where we get to Paul preaching to uh, a politician. Letter A, notice the couple's sin, the couple's Sin. Look with me at verse number 24. The Bible says, And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. You say, well, where do you see sin in verse 24? Well, here's where we get historical context that enables us to better understand uh, scriptures. The question here is, who is Drusilla? Who is Drusilla? Uh, Now, fortunately, we have Roman history books to tell us who Drusilla was. And there's a lot of documented uh, documented writings about Drusilla and uh, the royal family she came from. And so many historical records claim 
that Drusilla was physically beautiful. She was a gorgeous, beautiful woman. Drusilla was the youngest of three daughters born to Herod Agrippa I. Uh, There are several Herod Agrippas in Scripture. This is the same Herod who had John's brother James killed and had Peter arrested. We, We read about this Herod Agrippa earlier in the book of Acts. Herod Agrippa's father was the one who was reigning uh, when Jesus was born. And the wise men came to Herod, remember the story, and then had all boys to and under slaughtered. That was the same, uh, that was uh, Herod Agrippa's, Drusilla's grandfather was the one that ordered, the one that had this done. Drusilla's father was the one that had James killed and then had uh, Peter arrested before there was divine intervention. Uh, you re- may remember that Drusilla's father was the one who um, uh, went to Tyre and Sidon and w- uh, there was a, a, a political rally there for him and he was being praised by them and all of a sudden they began to call him a god and he took the praise. you remember what happened? He was eaten by worms. He was struck down dead and eaten by worms on the spot. What a way to go. Right? I can think of a lot of ways I wouldn't want to go. That's probably the top of the list. Uh, to, to be publicly shamed and then have your body be eaten by worms right there in front of everybody. That was Drusilla's dad. Now, at age 14, Roman history tells us that she was uh, placed into a forced marriage, as many uh, royalty, royalty daughters were. She was given in marriage to Azizus, king of Amiza. And uh, what we know about that marriage is that it was miserable, and she would divorce and leave her husband to marry Felix, the Roman governor of Judah. Uh, so uh, uh, Felix uh, used a liaison to woo her away out of this marriage, and Drusilla and Felix would be married, but uh, uh, Drusilla would be Felix's third wife. Third wife. So. He had now, uh, Drusilla was wife number three, and uh, Felix was husband number two. So uh, they would have a son whose name, they would name Agrippa. This Agrippa would die in a volcanic eruption on Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. So what was their sin? We're looking at Drusilla and Felix. What was their sin? Now, neither one showed any real temperance or self-control. They both did whatever their flesh so desired, even if it meant a marriage that was adulterous and sinful. We see the couple's sin. Let her be, notice the preacher's sermon. The preacher's sermon. Look at verse number 25. The Bible says, we'll look at the first half of the verse, and as he, Paul, reasoned. What was Paul's sermon in the couple? He had three points. Righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. This is so important. A lot of folks, when they want to witness to someone, they want to be very quick and generic on sin and hell and get to salvation through Christ. Paul made sure to take the time to let this couple know, you two are living in sin. He didn't pull any punches. let's Let's look at his three points here. He talked about righteousness. You know what he was telling them? He was saying there is right and there is wrong. He said there is a moral law. Your sin is a violation of that law. He told them, he said, you have crossed God's line. 
you are not living in obedience to the God that created you. He let them know that there, there was sin in their life. And by the way, when we're preaching the gospel to someone who is famous, we cannot back down on this truth. Again, Paul very easily could have thought to himself, boy, Felix is a man of great power. If I can woo him and win him over and make him my friend, maybe he'll let me go. But Paul was less concerned about being let go and getting something out of Felix. He was more concerned about Felix's soul and where he would spend eternity. And so he preached to him righteousness. He also preached to him temperance. What is temperance? Temperance is self-control. It's denying the fleshly impulses and saying, I'm not going to follow my flesh. I'm going to follow what's right. I'm going to follow what's right. Let me ask all of you a personal question, because this is a question I ask myself on a regular basis. When was the last time that your flesh desired something and you told your flesh no? When was the last time? It can be something as simple as, ooh, I want a cup of coffee. You know what? I'm going to suppress the flesh, and I'm going to say no. I want to watch TV. You know what? I'm going to turn my TV off and I'm going to go read my Bible or pray or spend time with my family. I want to stop at McDonald's and get... Listen, that's always a bad idea. Amen? It's funny. So many people bag on McDonald's, but McDonald's is probably the most successful restaurant in America. Somebody's eating at McDonald's. Where is that self-control? Where is that self-control? We live in an instantaneous gratification culture. I have to have it right now. And we are raising a generation of children who don't know what the word no sounds like. This will be a revelation to my two children, and they will now understand my parenting style just a little bit more. But there are times where they come to me and ask if they can have a soda, or they can watch TV, or they can have a cookie, and I just flat out tell them no. And they think, man, Dad's not, be, Dad's not in a good mood. Or why, why, why did he tell me no? The reason why I tell them no is I'm trying to teach them that sometimes the answer is no. How many of you live life long enough to learn that sometimes the boss says no? You don't always get your way. You're raising a generation of kids that when they hear no in the workplace, they walk around with their, poop, their lip out. they got the poochy lip disease as... Uh, as Patch the Pirate put it, right? They sulk. They sulk. And you know what? Sometimes we need to learn to tell ourselves, no! Felix and Drusilla were not happy with their marriages, so instead of working through their marriages, they jumped ship and they jumped into a a lust-filled marriage with each other, and Paul said, listen, uh, first of all, you guys are in violation of God's law. And second of all, you two know nothing about temperance. He had three points to his sermon. He talked about righteousness. You all have violated the law. You two need to learn temperance. And his third point to his sermon, he preached to this couple, was that there is a judgment to come. You know what he looked at the two of them and said is, one day, Felix, one day, you will stand before the almighty judge of the world and you will give an account of your life to him. Felix, I just stood in your courtroom on trial 
One day you will stand in God's courtroom on trial. One day you're going to be judged for your sin. And if you don't get this thing right and put your faith and trust in Christ to save you, you're going to be condemned to hell for your sin. He talked about judgment to come. He pulled no punches with Felix and Drusilla. He told them that they were in violation of God's laws, that they lacked self-control, and that if they didn't get their heart right, they didn't confess their sin and, and, and get on the right side of that judge, that judgment was coming. Well, what was the response to Paul's preaching? Let her see. We see Felix's shame. Felix's shame. Look back at verse number 25. The Bible says, And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, here's the response. Felix trembled. He trembled. He physically shook and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. We'll look at verse 26 in a moment. Felix decided not to decide. Felix decided that he would kick the decision down the road. We see a pattern here with Felix, don't we? He adjured the, the adjournment of Paul's, uh, the, the outcome of Paul's case, and now he's throwing an adjournment at the outcome of his own salvation. He, he's deciding not to decide. By the way, when you decide not to decide, you're still deciding. You're still deciding. Someone says, another day I'll get saved. Another time I'll put my faith in Christ. You know, there may not be another day. There may not be another day. There are a lot of people who say, I'll get saved tomorrow, and tomorrow never comes. I'm young. There, there will always be tomorrow. I'm young. I cut grass one time. One of the many jobs I've worked, I had a job cutting grass in a cemetery. And they gave me a weed eater and I was cutting grass that had grown up over headstones. And I remember as I cut the grass off of those headstones and seeing those dates revealed just about every age through life from one, two years old all the way up through the elderly, including those in their teen years and their 20s and 30s. People died. And I thought to myself that day, as I, that summer day, as I cut the, that grass and I was weed eating uh, through that area, I remember thinking to myself, all of these people, their day came when it was not expected and they died and I don't know how many of them went to heaven and how many of them went to hell. You see, God said through Paul's mouth to Felix, there's a judgment coming, you need to decide. And Felix said, I'll decide another day. He trembled. He kicked the can down the road. He decided not to do it. But look at the quick digression of Felix. Look at verse 26. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. Notice the digression of Felix. He fears. He pushes the decision down the road. Then his heart becomes hard as he looks for Paul to give him a bribe so that he can be released. What's happening here? Boy, I believe, and this is my opinion of the, of the passage. I'll state it as my opinion. I believe what happened here is that Felix tasted of salvation, but never swallowed. Yeah. And he crossed God's deadline. And the Spirit of God said, Felix, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not going to call you to repentance anymore. And in his guilt... Instead of turning to Christ for salvation, he sought to discredit Paul by looking to get a bride from him. So he can say, even preacher Paul 
is corrupt. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 6 in your Bibles. We're almost done this evening. I brought to the pulpit tonight four pages of notes. I'm down to the last half page, so we're almost done. Hebrews chapter 6. Look at verse number 4. This is a, a passage that has stumped people for a long time. I believe Felix epitomizes this passage. Look at verse 4. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to open shame. I think that's exactly what Felix did, is what this passage describes. Felix understood the gospel. He tasted of it. The Holy Spirit had worked in his heart. He had been a partaker of the Holy Ghost's conviction. He had fallen from his opportunity to be saved by rejecting it. And the Bible says it is impossible. It is impossible now for Felix to be saved. I, I shouldn't say the Bible says that. I believe that's what I believe that's what the teaching is here. The digression of Felix. Now hear me out on this. I know that I'm preaching to those of you in the room, 99% of you, 95% of you are saved. But there may be someone here who isn't, and there's also an online audience, and those that watch this sermon maybe later and stumble on this. And so give me just a moment to, to hammer home this point. Don't play around with the gospel. Don't play around with it. Don't understand it and feel the conviction of the Spirit of God and push it away and push it away and push it away and delay and say, I'll wait another day, another time. No, my friend, the Holy Spirit of God, if you understand the Gospel and the Spirit of God is calling you right here and right now, you should drop to your knees in repentance and give your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't delay. Don't delay. Don't push it off. There may not be another opportunity. There may be the very opportunity that you may live and breathe air in and out of your lungs, but the Spirit of God might say, your time has passed. I'm done. Oh, I don't want that day to come for you. I don't want that day to come for you. You should humble your heart. You know what keeps most people out of heaven? Pride. Pride. Well, I'm smarter than God. Well, I got a list of questions. If I got to sit down with God, He'd never answer. He wouldn't be able to answer. Oh, really? He's infinite and you're finite. Good luck with that. I've used this before, but you see an ant crawling across the, the, the pavement. Try to teach that ant trigonometry. You have a better chance of teaching an ant trigonometry than you do getting me and you to understand God. His ways are so much higher than our ways. Now don't you be so arrogant as to think that somehow you're smarter than God and you've got it more figured out than God. God loves you so much that in your, uh, in your ignorance, He sent Jesus down to die on the cross for you and He's calling you to salvation. He's, he's, he's calling you to repentance. Please, my friend, I beg you, I implore of you, do not do what Felix did. Do not tremble and push the decision down the road. Come to the Lord and be saved. And we see, we see number one, we see the, Paul's trial before Felix. Number two, Paul's testifying to Felix quickly, quickly. Number three, we see Paul's 
tranquility, Paul's tranquility. Look at verse number 27. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. And I believe what happens here is that Porcius Festus is put in place of Felix. Felix has been removed from that spot, transferred to another post, and Porcius Festus comes into rule in Felix's room, in his space. And uh, But what did Felix do? He held Paul in limbo for two years. For two years, Paul was held in Caesarea, a port town. And I imagine that maybe, and again, this is my imagination at work here, but maybe, just maybe, Paul's uh, uh, holding cell, his apartment where he lived uh, uh, under Roman guard, under Roman rule, maybe it faced the Mediterranean Sea. And for two years, he would look out his window and watch the beautiful Mediterranean uh, waves of the sea uh, wash up on the shore there. Well, what did Paul do for those two years? Did he write letters? We don't have any evidence that Paul wrote a single epistle that landed in Scripture those two years. What did Paul do? I'm sure that there were folks that came in to him and he ministered to them. I'm sure Paul was busy witnessing to the Roman guards that watched him. I'm sure that Paul was a personal soul winner. But watch this. Paul took those two years away from ministry to rest. To rest. And I believe that sometimes God calls Christians to a season of rest. Oh, I don't mean that you quit serving God. I don't mean you quit living for God. But I mean that God gives you a season where you can have that tranquility and rest in your heart. We're going to see next week that uh, Porcius Festus comes on the scene and replaces uh, Paul. And God uses Porcius Festus to move him along to the next station, of course, after Paul witnesses to Festus. And we'll look at that next week, how yet Paul witnessed to another politician. He used his Influence. Listen, the thrust of the message tonight is this. Be faithful in your witness. Some of you don't know this, but in the next 12 months, God may lead you into the presence of someone who has great influence in our culture. Are you going to be ready to give the gospel? God may use you to lead someone to Christ, and that person lands in the presence of someone of great influence. Are you ready to give an answer of the hope that lieth within you. Are you regular in your witness? And are you bold in your witness? Boy, I encourage you tonight. Be ready. Be ready. Be instant in season and out of season. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight. Lord, thank you for the Bible. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we, we go. And uh, Lord, each week, your word challenges us to be more like you. And God, tonight, help us to be ready. To be ready to tell others. Help us to be ready to witness to those who are famous and hold influence and to the regular Joes and Janes that we meet on the street. Lord, help us to be like Paul in this way. More importantly, help us to be like you. God, tonight, work in our hearts. May we leave here tonight with gospel tracts in our pocket, ready to distribute and tell others who will listen of the good news of salvation. In Jesus' name.